He will show us all the way through the public ministry of Christ, a splendid, perfect, balanced combination of grace and truth. We will see His glory as He feeds the hungry, as He heals the sick. We will see His glory as He honored women, as He welcomed little children. We will see His glory as He made friends with the outcasts of society, as He touched the untouchables. But above all, in John's theology, we will see His glory at the cross. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Jesus Christ, God in Human Flesh. What is the importance of the humanity of God manifested in His Son, Jesus Christ? Well, that is what Pastor Carl addresses today as we continue our study in the book of John. Join us in John chapter 1, verse 14, as we continue. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That is, He took on humanity to Himself. And of course, the birth of the Lord Jesus is absolutely unique. The Word became flesh, not the creation of a new person as in your fleshly birth, but perfect, sinless humanity added to his endless deity. The Word was born flesh. The incarnation, it was deity funneled in to humanity. Now, verse 1, coupled with verse 14, is one of the clearest, plainest affirmations of the deity of Christ found anywhere in the Bible. If you believe the Word was God, verse 1, and if you believe the Word became flesh, verse 14, then the only conclusion you can come to is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. In other words, humanity was added to His deity. And yet in becoming flesh, the Bible teaches He did not change. He did not give up any of His deity. Now, as you know, the word flesh is used in different ways in the New Testament. Very often it's used to refer to our fallen Adamic nature. Paul speaks about the deeds of the flesh, of the fallen sinful nature. And then he lists immorality, adultery, and all kinds of wicked things. But here the word flesh is being used, much like we commonly use it in English, to refer not to our fallen humanity, but to our humanity itself. And so when it says the word became flesh, it's not speaking here of fallenness or sinfulness. It's just simply saying God became a man. Now, secondly, not only did the word become flesh, we're told the word dwelt among us. The Bible says he dwelt among us. Now, this word dwelt, or in some of your translations, lived, is a verb that literally means to live in a tent. In fact, when it's used in a noun form in the New Testament, it just means a tent. Now, that's rather interesting. Remember the Apostle Paul, when he described our bodies, how did he describe them? As a tent. Listen to what he said to the church at Corinth. He said, for we know that if the earthly tent, which our house is torn down, that is if this earthly tent, this body, and he uses a tent because our body is so temporary, here today, gone tomorrow, the Bible says, boast not yourself about tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. If our earthly tent is torn down, if we die, the Bible says we have a building. Hey, I have here a tent. But when I die and I go home to be with the Lord, I'm getting a building. Ultimately, God is going to give me a permanent structure to live in, a permanent structure in which you can relate to me in, a body 
that will take this mortal flesh and put on immortality. He says, we have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And so our bodies are little tents that we live in. And so it's interesting that Paul describes us in that way, as does John, as he describes the Lord Jesus. He pitched his tent among us. He's describing his humanity. And yet this word tent, interestingly enough, is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for the tabernacle. You know, as the Jews had, had been uh, deported out of uh, the promised land and scattered all among the nations, they lost their ability to read their scriptures in the original language. And so there came a time in their history when a translation was put into Greek. The Old Testament was put in Greek because that was the universal language of the day. You know what it's called, the Septuagint. You see it very often out in the margin of your Bible, abbreviated LXX. And very often in the New Testament, it quotes the Septuagint. That's why when you go back and you read the verse that is uh, footnoted, and you say, oh, this comes from Isaiah 9, and you go back and you read it in the New Testament, it says the same thing, but not exactly the same way because we're working between languages. He very often quotes the Septuagint. Here's the point I'm trying to make. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word tent is translated tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. What is John trying to do for us? It's very clear. Remember, there was a tent, a portable structure that the children of Israel used as the place of worship. It later became more permanent. It later became the temple. Remember David? He said, man, God's got a tent for his house, and I'm living in a palace. God ought to have a more permanent structure. And go, so God ultimately built a temple, not by David, though he collected the material, but by David's son, Solomon. But here's the thing. They had this tent, and the tent, or the tabernacle as it's called, it's a beautiful prophecy and picture of Christ. I hope maybe someday God will let me preach a series on the tabernacle because every dimension of the tabernacle, the way it's shaped, the way the furniture is put together, everything is a picture of the work and character of the Lord Jesus Christ, this divine human person. And if you remember, in a section of the tabernacle, later in the temple, there was a section known as the Holy of Holies. And once a year on Yom Kippur, Yom Day, Kippur Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, you hear Jews today talk about, well, we're celebrating the Day of Atonement, one of the holidays, like Hanukkah, that they celebrate. On the Day of Atonement, they would go into that section of the temple, the high priest would, and he would take an innocent, unblemished lamb, and he would slaughter it, and he would put the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was about the size of this pulpit turned sideways. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the second set, because Moses destroyed the first due to the disobedience of the people. There was the budded rod of Aaron, and there was the jar of manna. The budded uh, rod of Aaron, if you remember, represented the children of Israel's rejection of God's leadership. The jar of manna, the rejection of God's provision. The second tablets, the rejection of God's law. All became symbols of sin, how the children of Israel had failed God. And so the high priest would go in, he would take the blood and he'd put it on the top of the mercy seat. And when God looked down on the nation, he didn't see all of their sin. He saw the blood that had temporarily atoned for the sin. And when he put the blood on the top of the mercy seat, God would come in his glory. The Shekinah glory would fill the temple. And of course, if the high priest did not approach God properly, 
he'd be killed. Tradition tells us they tied a rope around his leg and they'd drag him out because no one dared go in if he died. And if they stopped hearing the jingle of the bells on the robes that he wore, they knew he died and so they would pull him out. And so here's the point he's trying to make. Just as God himself, his presence came into that tabernacle, he is saying of the Lord Jesus Christ, he tabernacled among us. It is absolutely incredible imagery. The word was born flesh. The word dwelt among us. Third, the Bible says, we beheld his glory. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. Now, the word glory is a very important biblical word. It's doxa in the original. We get our English word doxology. You know, that little liturgical expression of praise that they sing in some churches every Sunday when the offering is given. So what does the word glory mean? How is it used in the Bible? Well, if you just took a concordance and kind of followed your way through the Old Testament, you would discover that the glory of God refers to that outward shining of an inward reality. The glory of God was the outward shining of the inward being of God. Now, God's inward being, the Bible teaches, is invisible. And so all we can see is His glory, the outward shining of God. It's kind of like the sun. If we look at the sun, we will burn our retinas and we will go blind if we stare at it. But we can see the sunshine, we can see its brightness, its effulgence, so that we can see a world that is lit up. Even so, we cannot directly look at God's invisible being. If we were to look at God, we would immediately die. But what God does is He allows us to see His glory. Just as we cannot see the sun, but we can see the sunshine, even so we cannot see God, but we can see the glory of God, the outward shining of his inward being. Now, where do we see his glory? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches that God has revealed himself to man in nature. And so the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or again in Psalm 72, the whole earth is full of his glory. And so we see the glory of God in his created order and its beauty and its intricacy and its perfect balance. And yet God created us in such a way that just to see his glory in creation is not enough for us. And so as Pascal, the famous French philosopher, used to say, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Man wants more. He sees the glory of God in creation, but like Moses, he said, God, I beg you, let me see your glory. Yes, he knew God's glory in the heavens and on the earth, but he wanted to see more. He said, show me your glory. And of course, God said to Moses there in Exodus 33, you can't see my face and live. But he said, I'll tell you what I will do. I will put you in a little place by me there in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand. And when I pass by, you can see my back. You can see my afterglow, but you cannot see my face. God revealed to the prophets that Messiah would come and that when Messiah came, men would see the glory of God. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, and a child will be born and this child's name will be called Mighty God. Now, one of the errors, of course, the Jehovah's Witness make is they say it is impossible for God to become a man. 
They say, God can't become a man. God is spirit. And I take him to Isaiah 9 and verse 6. A child will be born to us. A baby is coming. And what is this baby's name? A child will be born to us, and his name shall be called Mighty God. And he will later write in that same prophecy in Isaiah 40, as he spoke to the Jews, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. It's a prophecy of Christ. That's what John is referring to. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And just as the glory of God filled the temple, even so God's presence was filled in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that He will later say in this gospel, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Paul will write to the church at Colossus and say that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, of course, when John says we beheld his glory, he's speaking of himself and other apostles who are eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're using the uh, newer translation in the New American Standard, it says we saw his glory. You see that? Um, you know, about every 20 years, most major translations are updated. Why? Because language changes. And so in 1996, we came out with a new New American Standard. And there it says, we saw his glory. It's kind of like the old King James. People say, you know, I, I believe in the 1611 King James Bible. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me, you know. And, and, uh, and what they really don't understand is they're not reading the 1611. They're reading the 1769 translation. Five revisions were done up into that time. I dare say virtually none of us could read. I couldn't in the 1611. Even the, the very letters are very difficult to read. Not to mention that between 1611 and 1769, there were 75,000 changes in the text. Now, God's word has never changed. It's the same always. It's established forever in heaven. But our English language changes. And so all a good translation says is what word today best represents that Greek, that Hebrew, that Aramaic word. Now, the new New American Standard says we saw his glory. The old New American Standard, I like it a little bit better. It says we beheld his glory. Now, the Greek word here is theomai. We get our word theater from it. You can hear it. And it has the idea of gazing, of watching, of, uh, of regarding something with a sense of awe. And for, at least for me, anyway, it comes out a little bit stronger in the word beheld. Not we just saw. We beheld his glory. Now, how do we behold his glory? How do we see it? Well, John will show us we saw it in his life. We saw it in his miracles. We saw it supremely in his death and in his resurrection. Uh, when we come to John chapter 2, for instance, listen to what he says about the glory of God. He said, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. This is the first miracle when he turned the water into wine. And he manifested his glory. And so we see it in the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will show us all the way through the public ministry of Christ a splendid, perfect, balanced combination of grace and truth. We will see His glory as He feeds the hungry, as He heals the sick. We will see His glory as He honored women, as He welcomed little children. We will see His glory as He made friends with the outcasts of society, as He touched the untouchables. But above all, in John's theology, we will see His 
his glory at the cross. As Calvin puts it in his commentary, the cross is like a splendid theater in which the glory of God is revealed. And never has there been a brighter display of the glory of God as in the cross of shame, because it is there we will see his glory and all of his love and his justice as they are reconciled together. We will see at the cross God's hatred, his hostility for sin, and yet his passionate love for sinners brought together. And so John says here, again, it's just the introduction, it's just in kernel form, we beheld his glory. And then he adds of the incarnate son, full of grace and truth. You see, John really anticipates some questions that people might have. If the word was made flesh, some people might conclude that maybe he gave up some of his deity. And John plainly says, no, because he was full of grace and truth. The word full means you cannot add anymore. He brought with him all of his deity from heaven. He is full of grace. He is full of truth. And so John says, we saw his glory full of grace and truth. Now that's the marvel of his incarnation. Now pay attention this morning. See, most preachers today aren't preaching a sermon like this one I'm preaching. Now there's a lot of good men who are. But a lot of pastors are being sold a bill of goods that this kind of sermon you can't understand. And so they dumb down their preaching to God's people. And they don't preach expositorily anymore. And so people today have a distorted view of the living God. And so, as we'll see, some folks have a distorted view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep following. There's the marvel of his incarnation, but consider with me also the measure of his incarnation. Look at verse 15. John bore witness of him, and he cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, as you know, John the Baptist is one of the most important persons in the New Testament. He's mentioned 89 times. And John was the one who had the special privilege of introducing the nation of Israel to their Messiah. And he had the difficult task of calling them to repentance, of preparing their hearts to hear the message that the Messiah would bring. We're going to study John next time. So what the Apostle John does here is he summarizes for us what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus Christ to help us to understand the measure of his incarnation. First, John taught that Christ was preexistent. Look at verse 15. Jesus, John bore witness of him and he cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Please note, John said he existed before me. That is a clear statement of Christ's eternality. Now, if you remember from Luke's gospel, who was born first, John or Jesus? John the Baptist was. Remember, the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the mother of the Lord, and he, and, and he said to her, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived the son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. And so John was six months older than the Lord Jesus, and yet he said he existed before me. The Lord Jesus existed before John the Baptist, just like he will later say in this gospel, he existed before Abraham, because there was never a time when he didn't exist. 
There was a time when he didn't have a body, but never a time when he did not exist as the eternal Son of God. And so Jesus was Lord before his birth, Jesus was Lord at his birth, and Jesus is Lord after his birth. He is the one who is related to time here as coming out of eternity. He existed before me. That's his pre-existence. Secondly, John the Baptist said that Christ was not only pre-existent, but preeminent. Notice, if you will, again in verse 15. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. For, or you might say because, why? Because he existed before me. John bears witness that he is higher than I. He is greater than I. We'll see it so clearly in the rest of this chapter later on. He is the king of eternity because he existed for me, because he is indeed God. And so he will have an image of the Lord Jesus where he will say, I'm not even fit to untie his shoe. Now we've got a distorted image of Jesus. Oh, he's my buddy, buddy. He's my friend. Well, he can be your friend, but friend, he's a whole lot more than just a friend. He is the eternal God. And because we paint such a distorted view of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have a multitude of decisions, but without disciples. People who have never really come to grips with who Jesus Christ is. And so now John goes on and he fills out the comments of John the Baptist with his own. Not only is he preexistent and preeminent, he is full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so in verse 14, the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle John, along with other eyewitnesses, says we have seen his glory. But now he says we have received his grace. And see, that's an important relationship. And John weds the two together. It's not enough to see his glory. See, a lot of people understand that he is the Son of God. But you must receive his grace. And so he puts the two together. You see his glory when you understand who he is. You receive his grace when you understand what he has done. Notice, for the law was given through Moses, says John. But. Grace and truth were realized or came through Jesus Christ. When the law was given through Moses, it peeled out there on Mount Sinai with thunder and smoke. It was a terrifying scene of the almighty presence of God. And on two cold stone tablets, God gave it, not even by himself, but mediated, the Bible says, through angels, the law. But when grace and truth showed up, it showed up as a warm, vibrant human being brought into the world through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, grace, like glory, is one of those indispensable words that we must know if we are going to understand the Scripture. Notice four times it comes in these verses. Verse 14, it says he is full of grace and truth. Verse 16, he speaks that we've received grace upon grace. Verse 17, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So if the glory of God refers to the outward shining of God's inward being, what does the grace of God refer to? Well, grace 
described in the Bible speaks of God's favor. Circle one of those graces, would you? Put a little arrow out in the margin of your Bible and write down Romans 11 and verse 6. Romans 11, 6. Let me quote it to you. It says, For if it, God's favor, for if it is by grace, if our salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. See what he's saying? If it is by grace, if God saves you and puts you in a right standing before him by grace, it is no longer on the basis of anything you do. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And so grace is God's generosity. Grace is God taking the initiative. Grace is God to the rescue. Grace is God pursuing us to the cross. Grace is God stooping, God loving, God saving. And grace like glory has its clearest expression in John's theology at the cross. Maybe this acronym would be helpful to you. Most of you know it. G-R-A-C-E. God's Riches at Christ's expense. Or maybe another acronym of grace. God reaching after his creatures everywhere. Grace is what God gives us that we don't deserve. It brings forgiveness. It brings peace with God where the hostility between me and God is gone through the blood of Christ who became my substitute. Grace gives me new life where the Holy Spirit is poured out into my heart, making me a new person in Jesus Christ. Now, please note, it says, for of his fullness. And if you have a Bible with footnotes out there in the margin, it gives you the literal Greek rendering. It says, out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. We have not yet received the fullness of grace. The Bible says we received out of his fullness, grace upon grace. So it's grace following more grace. God saves us by grace. And once we're saved by grace, he makes us more like Jesus Christ by grace. And someday in eternity, we will see the fullness of grace. Now understand in John's thinking, grace and truth are inseparable. They are wedded together. Grace without truth would be deceitful, it would be unjust, and yet truth without grace would damn us, it would condemn us. The truth is, is that we've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death, and if God simply dealt with us on the basis of truth, we would all be eternally lost in the sight of an infinitely holy God. But he deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. It's not grace at the expense of truth. It's not truth at the expense of grace. But grace and truth in perfect balance and proportion found in Jesus Christ. Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, met all of the demands of the law so that God can forgive our sin. For of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And we're going to see it all the way through this gospel. Again, it's here just in kernel form. We'll see it in Nicodemus. That religious man who lives a very moral life, but he's lost, as Jesus describes him, and he is told that he must be born again. We will see it at the woman at the well who's been married five times, and now she's with a sixth man that she's not even married to. We will see it with the woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. And in every instance that we will examine, when the recipient embraces the grace of God, he goes for broke. 
they totally give themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ because they recognize that the favor of God becomes a motivation to serve the living God. That is going to become a major theme that John is going to bring home. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 002. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.